The scripture reading this morning comes from the 38th chapter of Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is that that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loin like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings so they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the innermost parts or given understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods cling together? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Mac Davis begins one of his songs with these words. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. This is what I hear every time I read the first 37 chapters of Job. Job certainly did not prescribe to Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? According to Job's speeches, he was a just person. He was kind, but humbleness was not his long suit. Google defines being humble as having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance, being meek, showing respect, and being submissive. Humility is not just gentleness or meekness. It demands vulnerability, the willingness to be hurt. It is readiness to go unnoticed, to be last, to receive the least. Humility offers nothing in the way of peace as the world gives and plenty that destroys it. Yet it describes the way of Christ better than any other word. It is the way of Christ, and as such, it brings the deepest and most lasting peace. But Job has not realized this yet, or at least not at this time in his life. And where does the old saying of patience of Job come from? Because he started out questioning God at the very beginning of this story. Job is scarcely patient and or even tempered about his suffering. Quite the opposite. He protests loudly and relentlessly because to his knowledge, he has done nothing wrong to deserve this tragic suffering inflicted upon him. His friends blamed Job's actions for the demise of his property, his family, and his health on his actions. But Job continually asserted that he had done nothing wrong. He was innocent. He was sinless. He was righteous. How could 
God, allow him to suffer. Why were these bad things happening to him, a good person? Job went on and on, and his friends were even more verbose. It is a common theme in life to blame God for the tragic occurrences we experience. A hurricane hits, and it must have been God punishing that city. Floods come, and God must have thought we needed a cleansing. A child gets cancer, and it must be God teaching us a lesson. Someone dies suddenly, and we say, it was God's will. A teenager dies in a car accident, and we ask, why, God? Why did you let that happen? We try to make sense of a senseless experience in life. As David mentioned in his sermon a couple of weeks ago, we do not like to take the blame, but we like to point, people, point our fingers at others. Several weeks ago, as I was watching the nightly news, which is not something I do very often because it's just not very uplifting, a prominent politician was shown saying, I did nothing wrong. This is Job's whole point. Job has done nothing wrong, so why would anything bad happen to him? If you attended the chapel choir summer tour concert two Sundays ago, I know it, we've had a lot happen in those two weeks, but when I was writing this, it was right the day after, so <laughs> I noticed this verse written in the program. It comes from 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. According to the Apostle Paul, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Job did suffer tremendously. He lost his property, his livestock, and then his children were killed. And lastly, he developed sores all over his body. He had to be uncomfortable. I mean, yeah, we do complain when we're uncomfortable. But he also had friends that had not completed the congregational care ministry team training. <laughs> his friends were neither empathetic nor sympathetic. Job wanted to know why. It's easy to say that Job lived in a different world in a different time because, you know, we're wiser. We know that everyone suffers until it is you that is afflicted and you too want answers. A few days after Hurricane Andrew struck way back in 1992, a seven-year-old asked her father why God let it happen because Andrew's 160-mile-an-hour winds had ripped the roof off of their house while they were huddling in the stairwell. This girl's father found himself wanting to defend God, and he didn't want his little girl to think badly of God, but he had no words. Finally, he said, I don't understand why this happened, but sometimes you have to lose the roof to see the sky. The philosophy of the ancient world was God or the gods would reward you with health, wealth, and happiness if you were blameless and upright. 
Job's complaint articulates the problem of theodicy. The word theodicy is derived from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and dikei, which means justice. Rabbi Amy Jill Levine and her colleague write, the Odyssey seems to reconcile human suffering with the belief in the supreme deity that is seen to be both all good and all powerful. And then they go on with two alternatives represent themselves. Either A, God is all good, but not powerful enough to mitigate or remove the suffering and disorder, or B, God is all-powerful enough to eradicate suffering and disorder, but not good enough to want to do so. Simply attributing suffering and disorder to evil or to the devil offers an easy solution, but it does not escape the basic problem. Either God cannot stop the evil or the devil, or God can but chooses not to. So the ancient wisdom tradition reinforces the principles that the righteous will thrive and the wicked will suffer. The Odyssey is very similar to the prosperity gospel which was preached by evangelists at the end of the 20th century and at the first of the 21st century. It teaches that faith expressed through positive thoughts, positive declarations, and David, underline this one, donations to the church. And if you do that, it draws health, wealth, and happiness into the believer's lives. The prosperity gospel is not the promise of the gospel as I read it. Jesus promises to be with us through all the storms of life, but not that we will not experience trials, tribulations, and turmoil. Life is life, but we do not have to walk through it alone. Jesus is with us all times and all places. The beloved spiritual song, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, was written by gospel singer and composer Thomas Dorsey, not to be confused with Tommy Dorsey at the big band fame, okay? That's correct. <laughs> okay. Wanted to make sure I was getting this right. The inspiration came out of a heart-rending tragedy, the death of his wife and son, Here's what Dorsey went through in his own words. After putting my wife and baby away in the same casket, I began to feel that God had done me an injustice. I didn't want to serve him anymore or write any more gospel songs. I wanted to run away and return back to the jazz world that I once knew so well before. Then a voice spoke to me and said, you are not alone. Everyone was so kind to me in these sad hours. The next week, I went up to the college, which had a beautiful and comfortable music room, well-equipped and a good piano. There, in my solitude, I began to browse over the keys like a gentle herd pasturing on tender turf. Something happened to me there. I had a strange feeling inside, a sudden calm, a quiet stillness. As my fingers began to manipulate over the key, words began to fall in place 
on the melody like drops of water falling from the crevice of a rock. However, Job is not ready to be calm. He's not ready for that peace yet. Job wants a face-to-face -face audience with God. He thinks he deserves answers from the divine. He has been wronged and blames God. So God needs to answer for this travesty. God shows up. God has answers for Job. Well, not really answer. He has more questions than answers. But God speaks out of a whirlwind. And we know what a whirlwind can do. Fallen trees, broken windows, no power for a week. Job gets big drama and big weather. And out of the whirlwind, God asked Job three questions. Who are you? Where were you? And are you able? It must be very humbling to experience being questioned by the divine. It was hard enough when I was a teenager and I came in late one night and my parents asked me, um, where were you? Who were you with? And the one that the worst question ever was, what were you thinking? God asked Job, who are you? And Job has to answer, I am nothing. Compared to the holiness of God, compared to the mystery of God, compared to the creative powers of God, Job is nothing. And all of his answers will be devoid of knowledge of the divine being. God is telling Job, Sit down, you silly boy. You have no idea what's going on in the universe around you. You have no idea who it is that you are talking to. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we are told that the universe was created out of God's booming voice, calling it into being. In this last part of Job, the whirlwind tells Job that and much more. God asked, Job, where were you when I set the foundation of the universe or stretched up the measuring lines in the dawn of creation? And Job had to answer, I was not there. But God is still in the creative business. God knows where the storehouses of the snow is stored and the hail is and where the bolts of lightning gather before they are used. God carries the light of day into being every morning and then takes it away at night. God helps the eagle soar and the lion roar and God watches over the sea monsters as they swim in the deep water. God was there and God is here today in the terrific and the mundane. God is everywhere. God is very active, thoughtful, crafting the ebb and flow of creation and each day's journey. Then God asked the question, Job, are you able? Are you able to lift your voice to the clouds so that the flood waters may cover you? Are you able to send forth lightning? Are you able to give wisdom? And Job answers, I am not able. At this point, at this moment of Job's life, 
Job gets it. He recognizes that he is not the one in charge, but God. He understands that bad things do happen to good people. He is humbled. God doesn't directly answer Job's questions of why he had to go through the suffering. And God indicates that Job wasn't wrong in claiming innocence, but in asserting his wisdom. And God proceeds with a series of impossible questions to demonstrate the limitations of Job's knowledge. Like Job, we know we are not God and not able to perform miracles and the majestic things like God does. We were not there when the universe was formed, although my grandsons would probably debate that. (laughs) And compared to God, we are nothing. The book of Job deals with tragedy. And who has not been touched in some way or some place from loss, sorrow, and question God when God seems absent. Certainly Job's life was touched by loss, and he felt that God was nowhere near him, but God's answer to Job reminds us of Isaiah 41.10's assurance. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is present, and we do not have to fear. Even if the mountains shake, even if the lightning comes, even if the winds blow and the trees fall all over the place, there is no place to go where we will not deal with loss, disappointments, tragedy. Job reminds us of the bigger picture. Yes, our problems matter. And when we are grieving and mourning those who we mourn, they also matter. Our tears are real. Our pain is real. Our confusion, denial, and anger are real. But to begin the process of healing, We re-engage the world around us. When we pick up our hearts and our heads and look around at the vastness of the earth and the intricacies of life, that is when we begin to heal. In the midst of grief, we feel rudderless and beyond help, adrift, lost, but we aren't. The world is still turning on its axis. The sun still rises and sets. God is still God, and the mighty eagle still soars above. The whirlwind comes as a reproach in Job. But it is more than a reproach. It is Job's first dawn when he was lifted out of the fog and remembered he was in the presence of the Almighty God. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who is still creating. After the conversation with God, Job replied, I'd heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. This story has a happy ending. 
The Lord restored the fortunes of Job, the livestock and the children of Job. But the biggest thing that happened was Job learned humility through God's questioning. How about you? Amen.